This is Adapting, the future of Jewish education, powered by the Jewish Education Project and Jewish Live. I'm David Breifman. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to this next installment of, on our Jewish education series. And I'm pleased to be joined today by um, colleague and friend Gabe Miner, who I met many years ago, and perhaps we'll talk a bit about that. Um, and I'm sure you're going to see during the course of this discussion as to why I've asked Gabe to join us. Um, actually, he's joining us now from Poland, where he is living at the moment, and that will be part of our discussion as well. So, um, if I knew how to say hello to you in Polish, I would do so. Um, but I'd like to introduce all of you to Gabe. And Gabe, you can tell us a bit about yourself, um, why you think I've asked you to join our podcast, what's your background, and what you're doing now in Poland. Thank you, David. Dzień uh, dobry, as we say over here. Uh, so yeah, I am an experiential Jewish educator who's spending the year in in Poland uh, while my fiance does work on her PhD. She studies Yiddish literature and I've been working with Camp America here in Warsaw for the year. Uh, and much of my background is in the, the Jewish camping world and working with Jewish teens. Uh, but I've also led Israel trips, worked in day school, taught Yiddish. So I've uh, had my foot in a lot of different educational spaces. So Gabe and I first met when he was at a summer camp. Tell us a bit about your summer camp. Give a shout out to them and um, some of what, what happened there that made you into the educator you are today. Yeah, I grew up at Pinemere Camp in Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania, uh, actually, and I am quite literally a product of Jewish camp as my parents met there in the 70s. And I can't even remember what my job was when, when you and I met David. But uh, since then, I was the assistant director for three summers. And camp was really where I got to be exposed to a lot of some of the great Jewish education uh, and Jewish educators that I know, like yourself, uh, like the folks at Foundation for Jewish Camp. And it really sort of gave me the chance to deepen not just my own Jewish learning, but to really push me to make Jewish, my Jewish education um, interesting and reflective and engaging uh, in a way that I really hadn't been pushed to before. So let's probe that just a bit because I'm asking all of our guests to try and answer in some variation the same question. Um, it sounds simple, but I think it gets more complicated when we go into it. Um, what do you see as the purpose of Jewish education? Yeah, so I think for me, the, the purpose of Jewish education is to expose people to the sort of the rich cultural, intellectual, spiritual tradition of Judaism, uh, you know, what I would call the Yerusha, the inheritance, and to, to, give the, to give the learners the tools to dig deeper into the things that excite them. Uh, but I also think that this is, that this is really in service of a larger purpose. And so I was taught a long time ago, um, though I can't really remember by whom, unfortunately, that the goal of Judaism isn't to make good Jews, it's to make good people. Uh, so for me, I would say that the goal of Jewish education is to try and help people utilize the many tools of that Yerusha to help them become the best versions of themselves, which is a phrase, the best version of yourself is a phrase that gets, uh, you hear a lot in the camping world. So what do you say to people who say, nah, camp's just for fun, or it's not really about education, it's just where people come to hang out with their friends every summer? Like, what's really taking place at camp that leads you to come to those conclusions? Yeah, well, I think a big part of it is that so much of Jewish 
education really is meant to be lived. It's not meant to be learned in an abstract or theoretical way. You're not supposed to learn, okay, these are the, the ways we celebrate Shabbat. These are the ways we celebrate the holiday. And now you leave this space and you don't do it. I think what camp offers in a really unique way is a chance to live a Jewish life and an inclusive Jewish life in this immersive space where you're really uh, a lot of the week is dictated by Jewish time, whether that's blessings with meals or Shabbat services. And so even if you may be, and it depends also on the camp that you go to, but even if at your camp, you're not getting into like the nitty gritty of a Talmud page or of who the Vilna Gaon is, the fact that you are creating within your learners this sense of love and excitement for living a Jewish life is really, you know, is really significant and will hopefully get them to explore some other things on their own. Great. Um, so I was reminded to get in touch with Gabe and invite him onto this series because of a recent project that he undertook. I think in rapid fashion, he designed something which was pretty unique and amazing. Can you tell us about your Passover Pesach project that you undertook, why you did it and, and what you saw benefit from it? Yeah, absolutely. So my project was called Virtual Seder and I was able to uh, bring together more than 50 educators, rabbis, clergy and scholars from around the world to make short two to four minute videos um, where each person expanded on, shared a teaching about a different part of the Seder and posed a question to Seder participants with the goal being that this is a time when people, there had been so much talk about Zoom Seders and people are using Zoom Seders. And even within the Orthodox community, special dispensation offered for, you know, uh, legally for people to use this technology to come together virtually. And so that really got me thinking about how we can use, you know, what does it mean to not just be frustrated by the technology that we have to use, but how can we harness it and utilize it? Um, and so I wanted to put this together so that people who maybe weren't used to running their own seders and who maybe didn't have as many tools or the time to look through lots of books and websites would have a really easy and accessible way to connect with some tremendous scholars and educators to uh, to help make their Passover Seder more lively and to encourage discussion at the at the Seder as well. So we'll link to that for all of our listeners to, to have a look at. But I want to ask you a couple of questions specifically, like two to four minutes, like what can you possibly learn or teach in such a short amount of time? Why did you go for that time frame? I went for that time frame as someone who had been already for a few weeks on a number of Zoom calls, been, uh, you know, looking at different classes, looking at different things online, and recognizing that there is a serious uh, attention span problem that needs to be addressed. And again, trying to work within that framework, and also knowing that the Seder is one of the big complaints about seders is that they're too long to the point that people have published these 30 minute seders or five minute seders so that people can get through it and get to the food. So I wanted to, I chose such a short time because a, I wanted it to be something that people could use multiple videos with for their seder and still get to bed by nine, 10 o'clock. 
Uh, and I also wanted to keep it short because as much as it's interesting to learn from great educators, what I really wanted this project to do was to encourage discussion. And so I asked all the educators to ask a question, to pose a question at the end of the video so that really the video is just the entree. The video is just the piece that moves people into the discussion and the questioning and the really engaging with the Pesach story. So, um, you mentioned you had about 50 people participate. Um, and if you have a look at the lists of who you've got there, it's almost like the who's who of Jewish education. And one of the questions I have, like, did you have a personal connection with each of those people? Or talk to me a bit about what does the social connection factor mean in your work and in Jewish education in general? Because that was just a really impressive network which you established. Thank you. Yeah, uh, I have, I'm lucky to have a personal connection to, I think, uh, everyone on that list. There might have, there were a couple who were, who were uh, acquaintances, through acquaintances, but I think the, the social network component of this work is really important because the work that we're doing as educators is constantly changing and there are a lot of great educators out there. So, it's in all of our best interest to be learning from each other, to not reinvent the wheel when we don't have to, um, and to check in with each other and try to, uh, to, yeah, to, to learn from each other's experiences. And the people in the group, uh, a lot of them came from my time at the Jewish Theological Seminary, where I did my undergraduate work and my master's work, from my time in the camping world, from my work with teens. Um, so, uh, yeah, I've, I'm blessed to have a, a robust network of people who I'm really excited about, which was also one of the things that inspired me to make this project was the thought that like, gee, I think I could potentially bring all these people together with this ask of, hey, do this, t take five minutes of your time, not too much time, and just send this over to me. And I'll do the heavy lifting of compiling it and making it a, a fully fleshed out uh, website or thing that we can put out into the world. So I should acknowledge that Gabe was one of the inspirations behind me getting into this project and a chance to use this as an opportunity to reconnect with a whole lot of people. Um, do you think you develop those connections um, intentionally or like, is that part of your DNA as to what you want to be doing in your field? Like, or is it something that just, you know, you happen upon because you're just in so many different circles? Yeah, I think it is. It's a little bit of both. I mean, I think that people who, I think the, the best Jewish educators are people who get into it because they love building relationships. And so when you've got people who are excelling at building relationships and making connections and finding the good and the talent in people, and you're putting them together and mixing them around constantly, sort of by nature of who they all are, there's going to be this really rich, uh, rich environment and rich network of support and collaboration and excitement to see each other, to work with each other and to, yeah, to collaborate. Great. Okay. Um, so let's talk a bit about Poland. Um, I was like surprised, I guess, to learn that you were, you were there. I mean, you're not there for your own um, vocational advancement per se, but you're a Jewish educator living in a place which is um, fraught with a whole lot of Jewish stuff. And I'm wondering how you're experiencing living in Poland today, which many of us, I suppose, think of as a place, as a place of like death and destruction. And yet I also know that there's a, 
there's a burgeoning, vibrant Jewish community happening there, which is sort of remarkable that, what, 70, you know, 75 years later, we're now commemorating just last week the 75th anniversary um, of the liberation um, of Auschwitz. And now, and now here you are, a Jewish educator living in Poland. Um, talk to us a bit about what it's like to be in Poland right now. Yeah, it's it's great. I love living in Poland and Warsaw. Um, there's definitely, uh, there are certainly some pieces that feel weird personally. Uh, we're actually, uh, I live in the heart of the former ghetto. And I've been reading recently a voice, a book called Voices from the Warsaw Ghetto, which is a collection of, of, pieces from the Ringelblum archive, from the, the sort of treasure trove of documents that was preserved that tells about all manners of life in the Warsaw Ghetto. Uh, and so it's very, it's both strange and also deeply resonant for me to be reading these, these documents and to recognize, oh, this is, this is the street that I live on. Oh, this is just down this, oh yeah, I know this, this area as well. Um, so Warsaw is definitely a town in a way with a lot of ghosts, but it's also really moved forward. It's a very modern city. I think a lot of people, when I talk to them about Warsaw, they're surprised to learn that it's not still black and white, uh, but it's a, it's a very modern city. Uh, they've got a great tech industry. And as you said, there's a really a thriving Jewish community here. There is an Orthodox, the Orthodox community Davins in the synagogue that is still standing from uh, from before the war, the Nozick Synagogue. There is just down the street, there's also the progressive Jewish community, which my fiance and I have gotten to be a part of, Eitz Chaim, really wonderful, uh, yeah, wonderful people. Um, and then in Krakow also, there is a lot of interesting work happening. Uh, also here, there's the JCC, there's uh, the Louder Marashat Day School. So it's a really exciting time for Jewish life in Poland because people are are really coming together and celebrating their, their Jewish life. They're eager to learn more. Um, on Hanukkah, we went to a, a community-wide candle, uh, menorah lighting, and there were close to, there were two or 300 people in the square along with the chief rabbi and the school choir. So it's been really wonderful to see both the history of Jewish Poland and to engage with that, uh, and also to see the new, you know, the new waves of Judaism and how those are playing out here. Well, I, I think I'm still like fixated on the fact that you said you were living at the site of the former Warsaw ghetto and what that's, what that's actually like. That must, I mean, maybe I'm projecting here, but that must mess with someone's psyche and dreams and, and all that sort of stuff. It's <laughs> someone who studied the Holocaust and, and you know, from some of my other work, but, um, I particularly have done a lot of work and research around Janusz Korczak, one of the um, the people who is a prominent Jewish educator in Poland who lived and then was ultimately responsible with his kids in the Warsaw Ghetto. That That is just like mind-blowing in itself for me just to hear you say that. Yeah, one of, one of my educational heroes as well. And actually just last week uh, we were walking around and I realized, oh, we're, uh, I realized that we were right near the site of his former orphanage. So we sort of tucked around to one of the back streets. I mean, you know, now it's a, it's, it's an apartment building. The number doesn't even line up, but it's, you know, I try to remind myself throughout the time here of not to dwell on what happened, but to recognize it and to be 
aware of like, gee, how interesting to be, um, to be here. And on the, on the anniversary of the Warsaw uprising, uh, my fiance and I listened to a lecture in Yiddish from our former uh, professor and mentor, David Roskies, about the, about his, his book, Voices from the Warsaw Ghetto. And it was a very poignant moment to be, yeah, to be in the heart of the Warsaw Ghetto, 70, more than 75 years later, listening to a discussion about the history of this place in the language that was, that, it, you know, they tried to, to wipe out. Uh, and it felt really uh, very significant to, to be here in that moment. Interesting. Um, you also wrote a piece um, somewhat recently um, about a Polish, Jewish, Yiddish author, if I'm not mistaken. Talk to me a bit about that. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so back in October, uh, my fiance and I went to a small town called Kutno, uh, which is about two hours, two and a half hours outside of Warsaw. And we went there because they have, they host every two years, the Shalom Ash Festival. And Shalom Ash was one of the great Yiddish um, writers. And he was a novelist, a playwright, uh, an essayist. And he, he was born in Kutno and uh, eventually moved to Warsaw and Paris and America and Israel. But the town really is incredibly proud of the fact that he's this hometown hero, that he hails from there. And so every two years, they have a Jewish and Yiddish culture festival that's a real grassroots movement. It's not, you know, there are in Krakow and in Warsaw, they have these huge international Jewish culture festivals and people come from all over the world and they've got thousands of people. But this is, this festival is really, it's organized by the town library. It's got a lot of support and buy-in from the local government. The schools are all incredibly involved and they're really proud of their town's Jewish history. But it's very, it was very interesting to be there, it, to be in a town that has a Jewish culture festival, but doesn't have any Jews living there. Uh, so to be there for the night of Yiddish, of Jewish, the Jewish evening with klezmer music and Jewish food, you know, where they've got kreplach and challah and mug and david wine. And to, to be sort of the only person there, or one of the few people there who really has the cultural um, context for, for, for these things. Do you mind so, talking a bit about yeah? Sorry. Do you mind talking a bit about language in general? Um, because we've had some of our other guests talk to us about the importance of Hebrew language in Jewish education. I wonder if you want to say anything about maybe Yiddish language um, as well, because you've referenced it a few times. Um, I think I'm vaguely aware of the sort of research and work your fiance is doing as well. Um, do you think there's a future for Yiddish language or is it a language of the past or what do you think we should be making of Yiddish um, as Jewish educators? I'm loath to throw in Ladino as well into the discussion, but in, somehow, in some ways, what do we do with this whole issue of language in the Jewish world? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, do I think there's a, I'll start off by saying that Yiddish is a language that has been dying for over a hundred years. You know, even if you're looking back a hundred years ago, there are articles being written about how Yiddish is, is, is on its way out. Uh, and yet here we are in 2020 and Harry, the first book of Harry Potter was just translated into Yiddish and it sold out its first printing in 48 hours. So I think there, there's absolutely a future for Yiddish. Is it a future in which Yiddish becomes once again a Jewish lingua franca, uh, franca and, and it is 
the language of the home and super commonly spoken. I, I wish, I wish it were the case, but I'm not terribly optimistic about it. Um, but I think that Yiddish is absolutely a language that's worth studying uh, beyond, you know, it gets sort of, it actually, I think gets kind of a bum rap, not a bum rap, but it gets oversimplified into, oh, it's the funny, that's the, the language with the funny sounds, right? And it's Yid Hebrew and German, and they've got really interesting curses, but there's really so much more to it than that. The music, the literature, the poetry, the the politics it, there's so much to yiddish culture and what i've seen you know what what we've seen really is a lot of people are coming to yiddish now in the last 20 years in a way that they haven't prior to that uh, i think for a lot of people yiddish i think there are a lot of reasons for this i think Yiddish is a way to connect to a piece of Jew of judaism for people that feels connected to religion, but not necessarily tied up in religion. So there's uh, something that's palatable about that. Um, I think for people who are, I think for a lot of people, they have uh, holdups with Hebrew, maybe because of bad experiences with liturgy or because they are uncomfortable with questions of Zionism. And so Yiddish offers them a Jewish language that doesn't have this baggage associated with it. And, you know, I'll just share that last year while I was in Boston, my fiance and I were both teaching uh, Yiddish at the Boston Workers Circle. And we had, you know, between the two of us, we had something like, uh, you know, 20, 25 students who, and we weren't the only, you know, there were three teachers even. So you're looking at close to 25 to 30 students ranging in age from 12 to 80 coming together in their free time to learn Yiddish. So it's... Uh, now, all right. Now, this question is purely naive and ignorant, right? Who's choosing to read Harry Potter <laughs> in Yiddish? Like, which demographic are we talking about here? <laughs> it's, admittedly, it's a niche audience. Um, I think that there are... I think that some of the people who are reading it may be... Uh, listen, I hope that some of the ultra-Orthodox who are speaking, uh, who, for whom Yiddish is their primary language of communication, that they are that they are digging in and getting to enjoy that literature. Uh, I think for I think there are also linguists who are really interested in seeing how this how this story can work in in this language. And the the translator who uh, he, he did a lot of he, he did a really wonderful job translating translating it and really taking into account questions of dialect and class, you know, sort of class differences that you have in English writing that are harder to bring up in Yiddish. Um, so, you know, it's also, I think, partially a, a learning tool for people who are learning Yiddish to, to have this, this extra learning tool. And for the few folks who are growing up in Yiddish to have something other than, than Shalom Aleichem and Peretz to, to read. So I guess the second best part about connecting with old friends and colleagues on this in this broadcast is, well, when you learn these, like, <laughs> yeah, I really want I mean, that's that's fascinating. I would never, never have thought. All right. Um, Gabe, you're often seen, or if I'm correctly remembering, a lot of your education, you're with guitar and you're singing. Um, so talk to us a bit about the role that music plays in, in your educational outlook and Jewish education. Mm-hmm. And we're yeah. going to ignore my dog in the background for now, but keep going. Sure. Uh, 
I think my, I think music for me is a really important part of my educational outlook and what I try to do as an educator. So for one, uh, I love leading services and creating worship spaces. And I think that music is a really important tool in creating those experiences to help people come together, sing together, feel to help sort of mediate the mood and mediate what people help people along in their own trajectory, their own experience. Uh, and also for me, a lot of the music that I love to play actually is traditional American folk music, which again, going, goes back to Pine Mirror. Uh, Pine Mirror has a rich tradition of American folk culture uh, and folk music. And so a lot of the songs that I love to play are anti-war songs, union songs, um, songs about peace from Pete Seeger, Woody Guthrie, uh, all the all the folks in the, from the, the Folkways catalog. And so I try to sing those both because they're fun and singable, but also because like Pete Seeger, another educational hero of mine, I really believe that songs are an incredible way to, to teach people and to uh, put ideas out into the world and sort of enact them. So to teach, I think there's real significance and importance to singing, to singing about peace and to singing about, to teaching children these, these anthems of civil rights and of union movements to help them, to encourage them that these are important things that we need to still be doing and still be working on. What's Jewish about Seeger and Guthrie though? Uh, well, Guthrie was actually married to uh, the daughter of, of a great Yiddish poet. And later in life in Coney Island, he wrote a couple of Jewish Yiddish songs. But I think also, you know, I think that this is also a, a, a question that comes up a lot is in, and I think especially in the Yiddish world with the ways that Lefty, lefty politics and socialism is tied to Yiddish class struggle and uh, a lot of uh, Jewish, you know, our Jewish politics inherently lefty. And I don't think that they are inherently lefty, but I do think that these are songs that are being sung about treating people well and about bringing peace to the world. Um, and, you know, Seeger also was someone who didn't just love American folk music. He sang, uh, he sang from all traditions. And one of my favorite Yiddish songs, the song called Jankoya, uh, which Pete Seeger does a version of about a Jewish farming commune in Crimea. I think you're asking a really, um, or you're opening up at least a really important question. Um, is all education political? Hmm. Uh, is all education political? The problem, I think, and especially now more so than ever, is political has so much baggage around it. Um, so on the one hand, it, yes, it is. But on the other hand, education can't be political in terms of a system, because if it is, then you are going to be excluding uh, a, a lot of your learners. And that's, uh, you know, uh, th that's not a good way to bring people in and to start those conversations and to engage people. But I do think that education, and again, going back to this, what's the purpose of Jewish education is to make us good people, to make sure that we're treating each other right, to make sure that we are supporting each other. Uh, and so I think that I would say that 
those are messages that are that are apolitical. They are they are human and they are Jewish and that they are, you know, in any number of ways you want to spin it, that we're supposed to love the neighbor, that we're supposed to see each other as B'Tselem Elohim in God's image and that treating each other well is an important component of that. So, uh, so yeah, <laughs> short answer, no, it's not political. Longer answer, yes, and here's how. Okay. I mean, this is a thread that I think I'm going to pick up on with a few other guests as well, because we're talking a lot about education, trying to help people um, become the people they're supposed to be or the best versions of themselves. And yet, if we do have these underlying values, which we're directing them towards, there's clearly a success and a failure that's going to go on there. Um, You need people to end up a certain way. You might have various pathways for them to get there. But if there are certain behaviors we want, by definition, there are certain behaviors that we don't want. Um, mm-hmm. And maybe focusing on the generic, we all need to love each other and we want peace in the world. That's easier than when we take it a step down because you also started referencing um, union movements and labor rights and all of these things. And I think then it becomes um, a question as to the whole enterprise of Jewish education. But I think you've opened up fascinating, fascinating conversation. We're, we're coming close to time. I want to ask you, um, what's something that you've read or you're reading that you would recommend for all of our all of our listeners out there? So uh, one, as I mentioned, Voices from the Warsaw Ghetto is really an amazing collection of documents from uh, from the time of the Warsaw Ghetto. If you're not in the mood for something quite so heavy, uh, quite so document laden, I also really recommend King Matt the First, which uh, I read this year for, and you know, we mentioned Janusz Korczak. It is a, it's a children's book about a, Child Who Becomes King in an Imaginary Kingdom, written by Janusz Korczak, this amazing trailblazing educator. And even though parts of it are dated, uh, on the whole, it's a really, it's a really wonderful read uh, for people of all ages. Okay, well, I fully endorse that and I didn't plant that either. So um, <laughs> I'm really happy that Gabe's recommending that. Um, one of the other things I'm trying to do in these broadcasts is give educators an opportunity to honor by name um, and by location or setting, um, an educator that has made a tremendous influence on your life. Is there anybody that comes to mind as somebody who you would think has been a major influence for you? Uh, I think I've had some some great teachers. The two that I would want to name are a ninth grade English teacher named Mike Kleba, who uh, actually now has done a lot of really interesting educational writing and uh, Made, uh, he's worked with South by Southwest Education for on their panels. Uh, and then the other educator is my mother, who is a Jewish educator uh, as well. And she has had a tremendous impact uh, in the work that I do. And seeing that and her, her mother as well as an educator, um, it's, a, it's a family business. So I'm very lucky to be a link in a chain. Um. As a footnote, it is remarkable how many people I've spoken to who have got Jewish education somehow in their DNA, which does raise the bigger question for us to look at at another time, is are Jewish educators born or are they made? Um, <laughs> one of those deep educational questions of all time. But really, I want to thank Gabe for his time um, with us today. Um, I can honestly tell all of you out there listening that 
I did not expect this conversation to go where it did and I am totally grateful and fascinated and like truly blessed to have just spent this time learning so much from Gabe um, about so many different things that I really um, had no no pre preordained intention of necessarily going there, but I've really enjoyed this opportunity to, to chat with you today. Um, Thanks so much, David. And thank you for inviting me and for contributing to Virtual Seder. I really appreciate right. it. And I'm excited to see the rest of these conversations. Excellent. So enjoy the rest of your time in Poland. And we look forward to seeing you back stateside where international travel is once again possible. Um, and to all of you out there, have a good day, stay safe, and we will see you soon. Bye.